indie publishing a book can be expensive. Why? Because you, the author, are also the publisher. This means that you pay for all of the book-related expenses. Do you want a professional edit? Well, you need to pay the editor. Do you want a professional cover? You have to pay the cover designer. Now, he who pays the piper calls the tunes. There's a lot of benefits to paying for it yourself, but what do you do if you don't have the money to indie publish? Well, what I recommend is crowdfunding. This is using sites like Kickstarter or Indiegogo to collect pre-orders from your future readers to fund the development of your current book. The other advantage of crowdfunding is that it allows you to test the market to see if your book will attract readers, to know if people are willing to pay for your book before you go through the money and investment and time of finishing the book. It allows you to know if your book will resonate with your readers before you publish the book. This is so helpful for adapting your book for your audience. And if you can't raise the money, you don't have to publish the book. But what about your second time around? Would Kickstarter work for the second book in a series? What if you even kickstarted the first book in the series? Would doing it again make it easier or would it make it harder? Well, that's what we're going to talk about in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a difference with writing worth talking about. And this episode is for indie published authors of both fiction and nonfiction. If you are planning to traditionally publish your book, crowdfunding likely won't work for you. Not all the time. Sometimes traditionally published authors can crowdfund their books first, but in general, crowdfunding your book will make it harder to get a book contract. And we have a special guest today who is in the middle of crowdfunding his second novel on Kickstarter. His first novel was a success, and we'll learn more about that here in a second. Jonathan Schruger, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thank you, Thomas. So tell us the story of that first book that you put on Kickstarter. Well, a long time ago when I was but a wee lad, just starting out in my author journey, I took a course called Crowdfunding for Authors, and it was run by a guy with a last name that I can't spell. (laughs) And (laughs) I took Thomas's Kickstarter course, everybody. And as I was going through the course, it gave me a lot of just where to start from, how to handle the entire process, how to approach it, the correct mindset to have as I'm engaging my audience. And I tell you, I was starting with nothing. I had nothing. I had 70 newsletter subscribers. I had 500 Facebook friends, so you're looking at a conversion of about 45. I was starting from basically nothing. So I followed Thomas's advice. I asked him, hey, what should I do? How long do you think I should do this? Because I was planning, like, I'm going to launch this Kickstarter next week. We're going to launch it next week, and it's going to be ready. It's going to go out. I'm going to tell everybody about it. It's going to be a success. It's going to be great. And Thomas said, no, don't do that. You need to wait. And you're not just waiting. You're going to be working. You're going to be developing your audience. You're going to be developing the well that you want to pull all this water out of. I was like, but I want to launch it next week. And he said, don't do that. And so I waited, and I developed everything I needed to develop, and uh, I spent two weeks personally messaging all 500 of my Facebook friends, asking them to go to my Kickstarter preview page 
and just requesting that they critique the page. I didn't ask them to back. I didn't ask them for money. I asked them for their advice. I asked them for their counsel, and people love giving their advice and their counsel. And so they all went. And I had a whole lot of people offer good feedback. I had a whole lot of people offer meaningless feedback. But I got people going to the page. There's a saying in fundraising called that if you want money, ask for advice. And if you want advice, ask for money. It's a... It's sad but true when you're asking for advice that people start giving you advice and then they want to contribute financially. And if you ask for money, people will often tell you everything you're doing wrong, which is really helpful (laughs) because then you can fix it. That's so true. And so I had all these people coming to my page and then I launched the Kickstarter and we wound up funding on day one, which was something I wasn't expecting because I had all these people that were now excited about this project that they had been able to contribute to. And so they felt connected to it. And the project funded day one, and we wound up funding 350% over the course of the campaign. It allowed me to put in several illustrations, write several short stories to go along with it, made the audiobook out of it. There was, was a lot of benefits. Because you had stretch goals. So you're like, at 100%, the book is happening for real. And then at various financial goals, you unlocked short stories at a certain price and then ultimately the audiobook, which I appreciated because it allowed me to listen to the audiobook. Because everybody knows I listen exclusively or very rarely read ebooks or paper books. And for a lot of authors, the audiobook seems like this really expensive, you know, out of reach objective. But on a Kickstarter, it makes for a really good stretch goal because you can give it for free to all of your backers. And it motivates them to go and get their friends to back your book. And what a better way to motivate your readers to spread the word about your book than rewarding them with something that's valuable to them, but doesn't cost you a marginal cost to give them. Right? So creating an audiobook is a one-time cost. Giving an audiobook to 10 people, giving an audiobook to 100 people, it's the same cost. Right? You give the audiobook to 1,000 people, it's the same cost. There's no per unit cost. It's not like you're having to ship them a box of CDs for them to play in their CD player <laughs> like they did in days of old and a pile of cassette tapes. CDs. Yeah. The audiobook, that was the $7,000 stretch goal. So that one was that one was much farther along. I wasn't sure if we were going to hit it. And then right at the end there, when you get that last burst of people, it's like, oh, wait, I want to back this before it closes. That's what pushed us over that over that finish line and allowed the audiobook to be created so that Thomas could listen to my book. And I was so happy for Thomas. And, and with $7,000, that covered the audiobook production, probably covered the editing or most of the editing and the book cover, right? You, you were profitable before your book even came out. Oh, yes. Yeah, I was absolutely profitable. And that was from 107 backers. So the initial goal for the campaign was $2,000, and that just covered the cover and some of the editing costs. And I was going to take care of everything else because I thought $2,000 was kind of ambitious, to be quite honest, since I was study, starting from absolutely nothing. When we reached up to 7000 that covered the cover. It covered three more interior illustrations and a map. It took care of the audiobook, and it took care of a professional edit. So most of my startup costs for the book flat out taken care of just through the Kickstarter campaign. Which takes a lot of the pressure off the launch. You still did a launch, and you promoted the book, and you sold it. 
But all of those revenue that was at least for the ebook where there's no marginal cost, that's all profit, which is really good. And if you take your number of backers, if you take seven thousand dollars and you divide it by 105 backers, you get around sixty-five dollars per backer. And this is the magic of crowdfunding is that it allows your super fans to give you more money. When all you do is put your ebook on Amazon, your biggest fan gives you the same $5 as your least biggest fan. And there's no reward for being a big fan for the fan or for you. <laughs> you really miss out on a really special opportunity. So walk us through some of the rewards that you created to reward people who backed you a lot and also get them excited and also get you more money. So the important mindset to have about the Kickstarter is it's a celebration. Again, you're saying this is for your super fans, okay? This is their opportunity to get special stuff that they just can't get out of the store when they buy the book or out of Amazon when they buy the book. So the things that I would offer would be, this is a signed numbered copy. So this numbering, like the, the these are special numbered editions. They will never exist again. This is your only opportunity to get these. And so people would be like, oh, I want that. Another thing is I would allow people to purchase pledges where they could help form a character for the next book. And so they could be in the next Shades of Black book. And people snapped those up. I had a $250, you can be a grunt in the Samothracian army in the next book. I had a warlord, $500 warlord where you could help form a villain in the next Shades of Black book. And then I had a $1,000 avatar where you form a major character that will just play this major role in the next book. And it was wildly successful. I mean, people were just snatching it up. And it was the same cost for me. I was already going to make these characters. Now I had people make these characters for me. And then it costs the same to produce the book <laughs> and print the book and send them the book. But now that person is really invested. They are excited, right? They're going to be buying copies for their friends. They're like, look, this character was named after me. They have much more of an incentive to tell other people about it. And they're bought in. They, they're going to enjoy your book more. And there's a lot of potential here. And you're like, well, I'm not writing epic fantasy. You can't. I'm writing romance. I'm like, well, what are the cities named after? Right? You could sell off your city names, right? It's like, oh, it's Jamie Jamie Town, right? And who is Jamie the Kickstarter backer? She paid some extra money and you named the city that it's taking place after her. There's a lot of fun things like this that you can do and it speaks to a real core need that people have. People want to live forever. They want to be remembered after their time. They want to have a, a legacy and Sometimes they do that by building monuments to themselves in the cemetery, but other times they do it by sponsoring someone's Kickstarter book and being written in as a fictional character, right? Because if a book has endurance, a story can last forever, right? <laughs> Imagine if you were in the Iliad, you're, people are still talking about you, and it's 3,000 years later. <laughs> I back to the Kickstarter for Homer's <laughs> Iliad. <laughs> yeah, imagine you, Homer's like, hey, I need, uh, I need someone to back the Kickstarter. You want to be a Trojan who dies in the war? I'll name one of the dead Trojans after you. <laughs> there was a dude named Troy who bought the biggest <laughs> yeah, pledge. He's the biggest backer. And there's nothing new about this. If you look at this whole idea of patrons, that concept comes from the Renaissance where you'd have wealthy people who would back artists and those artists would often honor their patrons in various ways. They'd paint them into paintings and 
write them into stories and, and things like that. And this is that same kind of concept, except democratized, right? You're not asking for 10,000 ducats to write a story about somebody. You're asking for a couple of hundred dollars, which is not much of an ask for a friend of yours. They may have been happy to give you a couple hundred dollars anyway, but now they're getting something that's really meaningful in return. Like the way that I was treating it was like a reverse shark tank. It's like you go on the shark tank and you talk to these millionaires and billionaires and you're saying, I need investment capital to be able to start my product, my company, my business, whatever it is that I'm doing. Instead, I get to go to all the customers and say, hey, I need investment capital to be able to start this product, to start this company, to start this business. And it gives them the opportunity to get into it and they get a whole lot of extra benefits out of it. And it fixes the cash flow problem because you get the money now and you give them the book later, which means you don't have to go into debt or, you know, because going into debt to publish a book, not a good idea. But it, it, letting your people pre order is a great idea. So, absolutely. You put this campaign on, it funded 350%. So, you've got this big pile of money. You start sending out the books uh, to your backers. Well, what happens next? Well, I sent all the books out to the people, and then I started gathering their feedback, gathering their reviews. Did sort of a softer launch on Amazon for the full general release because I had tapped out my investment capital of friends on my Kickstarter. And so basically I was just reinvesting all of that capital, that money and everything into forming reviews and forming my professional basis for the second book for the remainder of my career. And I will say this is one of the downsides of a Kickstarter. Your super fans are getting a copy of your book directly from you rather than it being a verified purchase on Amazon. So you are put at a disadvantage review-wise right out of the gate, unless you can convince your super fans to buy your book again so they can leave a verified review. Which I had several of them do because the good thing about this is that if you can write well and then people really enjoy your book, they buy it for other people. I had a girl I went to college with. She bought it for her two brothers who were in the military. And then she was able to leave a verified review on Amazon. And then they left verified reviews on Amazon <laughs> and it has kind of, you know, dovetailed from there. So being able to follow up with the backers who really enjoyed the book and weren't just backing it because, oh, hey, John's doing a project. I'm going to support him. Hey, this is actually pretty good. I can't tell you how many messages I got. It's like, hey, man, your book was actually good. And I'm like, what did you think I was doing? <laughs> <laughs> they assumed you were just some dumb Marine. You didn't know exactly. how to write. Exactly. It was like, oh, that's nice. He's not eating the crayons this time. <laughs> no, man, I can write. And so they would come back and they'd be like, this is actually really good. When is the next one coming out? And so I was taking that and storing all of that for my second one. And now the parameters for the whole thing has changed because now I have a different audience going into this second release. The entire battlefield has changed. And this is, for people who are writing a series, this is an important thing to realize. When you first launch a book, whether you're doing it on Kickstarter or just doing a launch on Amazon, you're going to have a lot of friends who are going to buy your book because they're your friend and because they like you. They are not going to buy the second book unless they finished reading the first book. And they are not going to finish reading the first book unless it grabbed their attention and held their attention. And you're like, people won't do that. I'm like, 
how many friends do you have who wrote a book and you didn't finish their book, <laughs> right? Like me. Yeah, I, I, that's happened quite a bit. Uh, I have uh, somebody new and I was really excited about his book and I got it and it was awful. And I didn't tell him because he's a friend of mine and he didn't ask, what's your professional opinion of this book? I'm like, well, this isn't a story. It's an outline for a story. You're telling instead of showing in every sentence. <laughs> it's like you need to uh, redraft this showing instead of telling. He didn't ask, and I'm not going to say who it was. Uh, and good luck finding a book that makes that mistake because it's a common mistake that beginning authors make. But I wouldn't have bought his second book, really under no circumstances. And some people, they have a, a relatively strong initial book launch because they have a good circle of friends. And they're able to get the word out, and they get people excited, and a lot of people buy the book. But if those people don't read the book and finish the book, the second book is dead, and they don't know it because maybe those people aren't telling them. And one bad sign is you get all these people who promise to leave you reviews, and then they don't, right? Sometimes they don't leave you a review because they can't leave you an honest review that won't hurt your feelings, and the only safe path is to not leave a review. And so you don't want to pester them too much because exactly. you're putting your reviews at risk or you're putting your friendship at risk, and, and that's not a good thing. And so the craft is really important here. A Kickstarter campaign is not going to fix having a weak story. And that's why it's interesting whether or not you crowdfund the book too because you can find out really how good book one was by going back to those same backers and saying, hey, you backed book one. Well, now we have book two on Kickstarter. Do you want to back that? So, Jonathan, walk us through your kind of your thinking through this, because you know you've got these hundred and uh, some odd people who backed book one. What was your approach to your second Kickstarter? So I did not treat it the way I treated the first one. So in human psychology, when you're new, people give you a lot of leeway. How many times have you gone to a Chick-fil-A or something and the poor schmuck behind the counter has said, it's my first day, and you're like, oh, okay, and you give them the extra time they need to find the button, that giant button that says chicken sandwich on it. You know, <laughs> you give them the time to find that because he's new. Well, now I'm not new anymore. Even though we know professionally writing one book does not make you an expert, readers don't care. Once it is your second book, they no longer give you that leeway that they give to new authors. So I knew that was going to happen. I knew that all of my friends... That, you know, was my investment capital from the first one, they were not necessarily going to give that same level support on the second one. So this one was going to be a professional pitch. I am pitching based on my craft and my professionalism on delivering the first product. And so I ran a whole bunch of free promos, first of all. So I'm pulling in people uh, from the Amazon ecosystem. So I put the book into uh, Kindle Unlimited, and this is the first book, The First Shades of Black. I put it into Kindle Unlimited, and so people could borrow it from the Kindle library for free. And then I did a Kindle free couple of days. Now what I did before that was I changed the front and the back matter of the book to link to the preview page for my Kickstarter for the second book, so that when people finish the first book, they can see the sequel is coming. And so this generates a whole lot of interest from people who are now in a funnel. If they, if they get to the end of the book, they're in the funnel, and they want the second book. Well, now I have a link for you in the digital version 
for you to flow right into back into Kickstarter and getting all kinds of extra benefits and goodies. They're already all charged up and amped up because I had a good cliffhanger. They just want to be a part of this second one. There's a crowdfunding site called GoFundMe, which is a reward-less uh, crowdfunding site. So with Kickstarter, you get a reward for backing a campaign, right? You give $20 to help an author write a book, and you get the book as a reward. With GoFundMe, you get no reward, right? It's like, my dog needs surgery, and you go to all your friends, and you're trying to raise money for your dog. And the first Kickstarter you do has some elements of GoFundMe in it where people will donate, even though they have no intention of buying the book or reading the book just because they're your friend. Uh, but the second book is purely a pre-order mechanism. It is commerce now. <laughs> and it's going to be a lot of different backers. Some people bought and backed the first book, and they're going to buy and back the second book. But your move of trying to get more fresh readers into your story world, having them fall in love with your story and your characters, and then at the end of the book, it's like, hey, would you like another book, right? Because readers are always pestering authors. When's the next book coming out? When's the next book coming out? Well, now you're calling their bluff. I'm like, put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> it's $20 to back the campaign, and that's what, or $5. What's your first, What's your lowest backing $10. level? $10. So it's $10 to back the campaign, which $10 is a lot for an ebook, right? They probably could wait and get the ebook for less than that, and they know that. And yet, uh, over 100 people with the first book, and, and we'll find out how many so far with the second book are willing to spend more, sometimes a lot more if they're getting a hardback or, or what have you. And they're, they're willing to invest, but they need to be invested before they're willing to invest. So I'm doing more of a slow grow approach with the second one here. So uh, the Kickstarter launched on the 1st of November. And it funded day one again, which was a total surprise to me. That was a lot of social proof right there, because that meant that people were ready. They were waiting. Their fingers were on the button. And they were saying, I want this next one now. And your goal was $2,000. Goal again was $2,000. Yeah. So that's not a super ambitious goal, but that's also not a $500 goal. $2,000 is real money. And that's more than you're going to get from just one backer. Absolutely. The goal was the same. But this time I had removed the pledge to my campaign because you're my friend. Now it was, did you like my book? Did, did, you, did you enjoy it? Is this something that you would support on your own without putting all of this emotional stuff on it? And they did. I had somebody take the $1,000 pledge on the first day, which was a huge boost. I mean, that, that's what put it up over the top over there. Now, then the last campaign, it wasn't until day 17 of the 30-day campaign that someone took the $1,000 pledge, because that's a big ask. But now somebody was so interested in the series, in the characters, in all, and they wanted so much to be a part of it that they took the $1,000 pledge on the first day. So I funded the first day, and I only had, I think it was 11 backers. $2,000 from 11 people. And that $1,000 pledge was only one of them. So there's a sense of scarcity and urgency, which motivates people to back right now. So when you look at a Kickstarter campaign, when you first launch the campaign, you tend to get a big burst of backing. And then you either fund or you don't in that first burst. So you fund it in that first burst. But for other campaigns, it takes them a while to fund, and they tend to get a big burst of backing right around the 80% mark because a lot of people want to be the person to put the final amount of money in, right? 
So yep. there's a million dollars. We're at 999000 The person who puts in the last dollar, they feel like, I'm the one who made the difference. So everybody wants to be that. So you get a another flurry of backing around the 100% mark. And then you get a final flurry of backing right at the end. And in the last right. 72 hours, time's running out. This is your last chance. If you want to sign a numbered hardback, this is your only chance to get it. And if you look at it on a graph, it kind of looks like the Golden Gate Bridges is the term in the crowdfunding world where you have a spike at the beginning and then it goes up for a spike in the middle and then a final spike at the end. Now, one of your most popular funding levels in the first campaign was your $100 level, which was assigned and numbered yes. uh, copy of the book. Now, you limited that to 100 copies. So, right. And I think that that's key because for several reasons. One, you don't want to be stuck signing thousands of books. If you're not careful, that can break your hand. But also, the bigger the number is, the less special it is. If this is one of 100 books. Now, for your first one, you didn't do all 100. It's not like you signed and numbered 100 books and you've got some special signed and numbered books on your shelf. One thing I would suggest for the next book is to pick a bigger number that's inside of the range of what you promised, right? So you're setting the expectation that there's not going to be more than 100 or 125 uh, signed and numbered copies. But when you do the print run, let's say you do 50 that people order, well, go ahead and do 75. You're still making the promise, and it's one of 75. And then you have these special signed and numbered books that you can use as gifts, right? This is a really special gift. You want to use somebody a really special gift, but also prizes down the road. Because these potentially, the reason why people like them is they could become very valuable, very collectible. And if they're worth $10,000 later, it'd be nice to have a few yourself. Because exactly. uh, right now they're cheap, <laughs> and they may stay cheap. We don't know if the series will take off. The odds are against it, but you never know. And early Harry Potter books sell for a ton of money. <laughs> so oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. And they're not signed or numbered. They're just an early edition. And so th that is what gets people excited. Exactly. So walk us through some of your other thinking with the campaign, with the rewards. So with the rewards themselves, I was obviously able to add more to this campaign because I have a previous book out. So I had my traditional soft cover offering. I had a hardback offering, which I only offer hardbacks during the Kickstarter campaigns. They're all signed. But then I had sets. Say somebody came into the Kickstarter and they hadn't backed the first one. Well, now you can get a hardback of the first shades. It won't be numbered, then that time is over but you can get it signed. And so you can get a hardcover set of Shades 1 and Shades 2 together, and that will catch you all up on the series. And you will get all the benefits and the short stories and all that stuff from having a Kickstarter edition of the novel. For instance, all the stretch goal short stories that they unlock, I include in the Kickstarter edition of the novel. Now, the general release edition doesn't have those short stories in there. I sell those separately. So you have a benefit from backing the Kickstarter in that you get these other additional short stories for free. I sell the short stories individually for $3, and that's something that people have said they find really valuable, is that they're getting extra content and they're not paying anything else uh, to get it put in there. And so having these sets is something that has been drawing new people in, and it's allowing them to feel like they've been a part of the whole thing. They don't have to go buy the other novels separately. 
they can get the special edition as well. So adding these sets has been a big deal for this campaign. And something that continues to scale, right? If you use the same strategy for your next book, they can buy the trilogy. Exactly. There's a lot of people who back these sorts of campaigns. The most famous one, obviously, is Brandon Sanderson republished his Way of Kings book that had been out for 10 years as a really fancy hardback. I think his hardback was $250, and it's really fancy, and it's really beautiful, and he had... Six million dollars worth of people back his campaign. Yes, he did. Uh, and these are people who all, I w- I'm going to say virtually all, had already read the book. I had listened to the audiobook. I backed his campaign for $250, not because I planned to read that hardback, but because I wanted an artifact of the life-changing experience it was like to listen to that book for the first time. I wanted a, exactly. a beautiful artifact on my bookshelf and something to leave to my children, something special. My grandmother passed away earlier in the year, and we're going through her things, and some of her, some of what I got to get from her was some of her books. Some of the books that you see behind me, if you ever watch any of my videos, are, are books from my grandmother's library, right? These are treasures. They are things that, if they are nice enough and beautiful enough, and Sanderson's books definitely were, are the sort of thing that get passed down, right? Hardback books look great on a bookshelf. They look great behind you on a Zoom call, right? Like the, there's a demand for hardback books that's greater now than it has been in a very long time. Partly because there's just something unsatisfying about an ebook. It, you get the story, and that's great, but you don't get that evidence of the story. You can't yeah. like bring a guest to your house and be like, "Behold, all the books that I have purchased." And if you look at what the kids are doing and what the kids are into on TikTok and Instagram, the book influencers, the book talkers and the bookstagrammers really are into hardbacks. They're really into beautiful books that look good on camera and they're really into beautiful bookshelves. And they may have originally read the book in ebook, but that doesn't mean they still don't want a beautiful bookshelf version of the book. Exactly. And I mean, if a book is going to traumatize you, you can't throw your Kindle into the wall, you know? You just, <laughs> that's just not possible. Uh, you, oh, you can't. You want that? You want... <laughs> what what level recommend. of trauma are we talking about here? <laughs> I think a few Kindles uh, flew across the room during uh, various uh, books that have killed off loved characters and oh, also yeah. killed off a few oh, yeah. uh, Kindles, I think, along the lines. <laughs> But another thing about physical books is something I used to do with my friend was we would read a book and we would write notes in the margins for each other and then we would send each other the book and we got to share the experience in the book with our friend while we were reading and that's not something you can do in an ebook. So for me that's a value I get out of a physical book. There was one of the books that uh, was in my grandmother's house belonged to my grandfather and it was his it was a medical dictionary. And he had gone through, because he was a physician, and he went through every single word. And anytime he had to look up the word, he'd add a dot to the index. Uh, and if he had to look it up again, he'd add another dot, and then he'd underline it. And you could tell that he studied this book, and he had this whole book effectively memorized. And he wrote in the front, and it's like, this is owned by Bob Umstadt, uh, bought with his own blood. <laughs> uh, and, you know, free Texan. It was a real treasure. It went to my uncle, who's, a, who's also a physician uh, and also named Bob Umstadt. And so a real treasure. And it's not a modern uh, medical book. It's no longer useful for its original intended purpose of 
looking up medical definitions, right? Because medical science evolves over time. But so far, we've had a physician in every generation, and I imagine this treasure is going to be passed down from generation to generation. But that's enough commercial for hardback books. I know some people are going to do hardbacks. Some people are going to not. And when we're talking hardbacks, though, I want to say one more thing that has to do with crowdfunding. We're not talking about KDP's print-on-demand hardback program, because those aren't really hardback. They physically are hard, but it's the same softback cover. There's no dust jacket. There's no gold lettering. What we're talking about is offset printed hardbacks, which you really need to have a big number of hardbacks or at least a lot of money to afford doing that kind of print run, which can be very risky and very expensive if you're not doing a crowdfunding campaign, which is why I think the way that you're doing it, where the only way they can buy good hardbacks of the past books is on a Kickstarter. And as your core fans know, oh, this is the one chance to buy hardbacks. If you want to get any of the previous ones, now's the time. Clustering those orders, so then you can go to the printer and say, I need exactly this number of books, and you've already pre-sold them. It takes all the risk out of the system for you. Exactly. The risk is completely gone. Right. While still being able to provide that high-quality hardback. Now, it's not a Brandon Sanderson gold lettering (laughs) $250 hardback, but it's more than the KDP hardback. So one question I wanted to ask is, what mistakes did you make in the first campaign that you're like, I'm going to fix that in this second Kickstarter? Well, for one thing, I started with a much smaller newsletter subscriber list. Again, I was starting out, and you don't know what you don't know at that time. I didn't know anything about book sweeps. I didn't even know how to get all these other newsletter subscribers. So I was just starting out with people that I had private messaged and be like, hey, do you want to join my newsletter list? The pool that I was able to draw from was much smaller. Now, they were they backed. Yeah, the project funded. It funded way overfunded what I thought it was going to. But the the initial starting pool that I was able to dip my net in and pull fish out of was so small. I was really blessed, honestly, that I funded as well as I did because I was pulling from basically nothing. So your email list was in the dozens, right, or low hundreds for your first campaign? Yes, under 100. Okay. And then since then, you've been following the novel marketing methodology for list growth, right? You've been writing short stories. You've been giving away mm-hmm. those short stories to subscribers. You've been using tools like book sweeps and story origin and the kinds of things. I have episodes on email list growth. And what has your list grown to? So you had a few dozen when you started. Now, how big is your email list? I am now at 1,200. Yeah, so it's 1,000% growth, right? Now, some of you are like, 1,200, that's not very much. It's like, it's a lot when you started with 50. <laughs> and it's a lot easier to add your second 1,000 subscribers to your email list than it is to add your first 1,000. Because once you do email well and you send better and more interesting emails, people start to forward them and they you know, it, it grows on its own momentum. It's that first heavy lifting that's really hard. And another thing that Kickstarter actually does when you, People give you their information. They've given you their money. You also get their email address, <laughs> typically. Right. And they want to hear from you. If they're giving you their money, they probably also want to get your emails uh, as long as they're interesting. We're almost out of time, but what would be your advice for somebody who's trying to decide if putting in the effort to do a crowdfunding campaign is worth it? Well, you have to decide how much risk you're willing to incur if you just want to do a launch on your own on Amazon or uh, go into bookstores or libraries or homeschool conventions or whatever your strategy is. You have to decide about your risk versus your benefits. With having a almost non-existent audience like I did when I first started, 
it did not make sense to offset print a thousand books and then go and try to pitch people to buy those because then the risk is all on me and that would not have been good. Because it's a career killer, right? Your wife is. is not going to be wanting you to keep writing books if you just lost $5,000 on your last book and now you're wanting to do it again. <laughs> She's like, this is really expensive. <laughs> like you got to have a right. lot of ambient money around. Like if you're retired or semi-wealthy, maybe dropping 5000 and losing it on, on a book is okay, but you start to lose that family support <laughs> and maybe you lose your exactly. own support. You're like, I don't know if I want to keep doing this if it's so expensive. And it takes a long time to become a profitable author. This is not yes. a get rich quick industry. The five-year plan, the course that we have, that's the expedited path this five years. like that, And that's if you're working really hard and you're really focused. For, for most authors, it's 10 years plus before they really start making a, yeah. a, a living at this. And that's with really diligent work. Another thing is when you go on Kickstarter, if you don't reach your funding goal, the project doesn't move forward. There is no cost to you beyond anything you spent to promote the project. So if I have a goal of $2,000 and my mom pledges 80 bucks and that's all I get, well, I didn't get 80 bucks. Everybody gets their money back or it was never charged in the first place, actually. And the project doesn't move forward. And again, I did not incur that overwhelming cost of printing a thousand books. The only cost is to your pride. Exactly. <laughs> and let's be honest here. That's an element. And I think that's one reason why people are afraid to try crowdfunding because uh, book sales numbers are pretty opaque. If you're not in the industry and you know how to look up a sales rank and what that means in actual numbers, which typical readers don't know how to do. It's hard to tell if a book is successful or not looking at it at Amazon. Whereas it's very easy to tell if a Kickstarter is successful or not. There's a big number that says, here's what the goal is. And another even bigger number that says, here's what they raised. And so if you... It's very helpful. It's very motivating. <laughs> Our sponsor today is my course, the Ultimate Crowdfunding Course. Uh, this is the course that John used to help him crowdfund his book. Unlike other crowdfunding courses... This course was created by authors for authors. We specifically talk about how to crowdfund your book. If you want step-by-step -step instructions on how to make your book a reality, this course will help you with that. And if you're a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast, one of my ways of saying thank you for being a patron is by offering 50% off the price of this course. So it is way cheaper to become a patron first and then sign up for the ultimate crowdfunding course. And you can find out more about that at authormedia.com slash courses. And Jonathan, where can people find out more about you? You can go to my website, creativegrumbles.com, and you can follow the Kickstarter itself. If you just go to Shades of Black 2, colon Death Scream, you'll find it on Kickstarter, and you can track and see how we're doing. And we'll have links in the show notes at authormedia.com slash 306. You'll find uh, links to both the old Kickstarter campaign for the first book and for the second book, if you want to see what Jonathan did. And if you are thinking about doing a Kickstarter yourself, feel free to borrow the reward pledge level ideas from other fellow authors. There's a lot of thought that goes into that, and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Speaking of patrons, our featured patrons today are all of the new patrons who joined in the month of October 2021. That is CJ Malachi, Buck Jones, Barbara Brut, Tom Martin, Terrence Cleary, and Jenny L. Thank you so much for supporting Novel Marketing and helping keep this show on the air.
The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt. The blog post is by Shauna Lettler. The producer was Lori Christine. Our guest was Jonathan Schruger. And I am Thomas Umstadt Jr., your host. To find the blog post version of this episode, go to authormedia.com slash 306. Thank you for listening and live long and prosper.